glad you're here. Uh, my name is Tom Strauss. I'm a psychiatrist and um, my day job is I'm the medical director of the Resnick Neuropsychiatric Hospital just down the way, which is the acute uh, care inpatient psychiatric hospital that Eastleigh operates. Um, I'm also a palliative care physician, so I take care of patients with serious chronic medical illness, mostly cancer actually. And I come to the topic of uh, cannabinoids uh, and their role in, uh, in patient care kind of from those two perspectives. Um, on the one hand, uh, we have in the Reagan ER most nights young people who present with psychotic symptoms in the context of heavy cannabis use, so maybe not such a great thing. On the other hand, um, take care of patients with serious chronic problems including pain where our, um, our pharmacopoeia maybe isn't adequate uh, and there may be a role for cannabinoids in helping with fatigue or with pain or with appetite or even perhaps with psychological distress. So if you can't tell, I used to say this, I've been giving this talk in various versions of it for about a decade, if you can't tell where I stand on or where I stood on the proposition for legalization, then I've succeeded in giving you a balanced talk. <laughs> um, we'll see. You can make your own judgment. Of course, that's now um, sort of not, not relevant because legalization has happened. And the other thing, you'll notice that this update is just a couple days old. So um, the backdrop keeps changing, and this is a talk that really requires being updated at least once a month to keep current. You may know that there is actually a cannabis research initiative that um, lives on this campus. Uh, doing cannabis clinical research is complicated because, as all of you know, um, according to um, our, our past Attorney General, only bad people use marijuana. Uh, that was Jeff Sessions. Um, and um, so the federal government's stance is still quite restrictive, and as you probably know, cannabis is still, according to the, uh, the uh, Controlled Substances Act, a, a Category 1 drug, which means um, highly dangerous and addictive and no medical use, which is, of course, an absurd statement based on the science, but that is the federal government's position. So you can't study cannabis at the VA, and you can't um, move cannabis across interstate lines, and it's very hard even with an IRB-approved cl clinical protocol to study cannabis, even if you're in a state where it's legal. So it, it's a treacherous area. Um, here's what I hope to cover, um, sort of state of the science, uh, how we might talk about patients, uh, and some related items. And I, 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 I know that who you all are, and I know that probably your primary interest is in um, patients with um, chronic psychiatric illness uh, and what what might we be saying to them um, which and it's a complicated discussion so I hope I will do it justice um, so if you're looking for a single rigorous scientific resource the kind that you would you know consult um, frequently and you just kind of want to know where to go for it. This is it. This is produced by the, the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine in the spring of 2017. Uh, it is available for free online, your federal government, um, your tax dollars at work. Um, there's an executive summary, which is just a, uh, 10 or 20 pages. There's all 475 pages if you want the gory details. Um, and I think actually uh, this, is, this is the thing, the, the single source that I would refer you to if you want more detail. So what are we even talking about? So most people when they're talking about cannabinoids are thinking about naturally grown plant materials, typically the flower of the cannabis plant. Almost all of what we're talking about is not actually regulated by the United States Food and Drug Administration. Typically we're talking about stuff you would either um, smoke uh, or ingest in your lungs either uh, by combustion where you, know, you light it on fire and, and inhale it like tobacco 
or where, where you heat it above um, a temperature where the uh, con contents become volatile, but you don't burn it. That's called vaping. Um, or you might drink it in a, in a liquid uh, elixir, or you might eat it. And of course, um, in California, you can buy it from legal dispensaries or street suppliers. And of course, the great irony in California is that the tax and distribution structure of legalization has had absolutely the opposite effect on the black market that the regulators hoped. And the black market is thriving. And um, most people um, find it simpler and cheaper. Um, there are generally three classes of chemical compounds that people are talking about when they talk about cannabinoids. The, of course, the main one is the one that occurs naturally in the plant. You, however, can synthesize. Uh, and indeed, there are examples of synthesizing various molecules, most of which come from THC, the psychoactive component. Um, and then, and this is, I think, quite interesting, there's the stuff we make ourselves. Our very own mammalian nervous systems makes very small concentrations of cannabinoids. We have an endocannabinoid system just as we have an endogenous opioid system, right, or the endorphin system. So that means mammals come pre-wired both to make and to respond to opioids and to cannabinoids. And that's a really fascinating thing. This is not an observation. Um, but it raises the question of what are you doing to the organism, in this case the person, when, you, when they bombard themselves with, with concentrations of those compounds much higher than what their own nervous system makes, right? You know, we think the endorphin system, the endogenous opioid system, probably evolved to help us um, deal with, with pain in the context of, of our lives, and presumably there's an adaptive value of that so that you can keep running, um, you know, if you're being chased by a bear or whatever. Um, uh, not as clear what the endocannabinoid system might have evolved to achieve, but again, when you're ingesting plant-derived cannabis, typically you're exposing your brain to much higher concentrations, often for much longer periods of time, and we don't really know what that causes. So for today's talk, I'm mostly going to be talking about THC or tetrahydrocannabinol, again, what most people refer to as the psychoactive component of the plant, and CBD or cannabidiol, which most people refer to as the non-psychoactive component. This is an oversimplification because, in fact, there are hundreds of molecules in the whole plant. Um, and um, I think one of the themes today is um, big marijuana may be no more of a friend than big tobacco was, right? Big tobacco was not interested in our health and well-being. It was interested in selling cigarettes. And it may well be that big marijuana, which looks more and more like big tobacco as small producers get bought up by, guess what, what's left of the tobacco industry, um, that, th that there may be similar um, uh, motives, even though the marketing is very shrewd and the marketing focuses on, on the health and well-being that we can all associate with consuming cannabis. Although some of you will remember that early cigarette advertising likewise emphasized the health and well-being that smoking cigarettes was going was to cause and, uh, and, or was going to achieve. And it really was very late in the game that the, that the tobacco industry even acknowledged that tobacco might be hazardous to your health. So here we have Ian <coughs> and um, I forget what her name is. I can't see it from here. But um, so don't they look robust and healthy in a beautiful New York City scene? Um, and sort of pseudoscientific, while fighting cancer, Molly prefers a sativa cannabis. And look, it sort of looks like the periodic table of the elements, that elegant JG, sort of pseudoscientific. Is there any evidence that cannabis helps fight cancer? Well, if you put enough cannabinoids in a test tube with, with a cancer cell, maybe it'll kill the cancer cell. Is there human evidence that cannabis uh, is a treatment for cancer? No. 
Um, indeed, this is the slippery slope. In fact, one of the most dangerous aspects, I think, I, in my view, is the notion that people would forego evidence-based, let's say they have a curable cancer, they would forego evidence-based treatment in favor of um, Leafly's advertising campaign. Again, in patient populations with complex problems, it's a tremendous vulnerability that could be exploited, right? Um, just as many of our patients with insomnia or anxiety or even psychotic illness get told by somebody, the internet, you name it, that you know, cannabis is really going to fix their problem. Um, and that's kind of scary. The American public um, uh, feels pretty strongly that um, medical marijuana, <coughs> the fiction that doctors would prescribe marijuana, should be available. Fiction because even before legalization in California, no doctor ever prescribed marijuana. Doctors signed an attestation that said that the patient had a problem that might benefit from cannabis or in their medical opinion. And if you want to see the list at the end of the, the conditions that qualify in California, it reminds you of why you don't want to be sausage, watch sausage being made and you don't want to watch law being made because it has nothing to do with the science, right? But um, that's another irony in all of this. There are, this is a trick slide, so this is, there's actually, this is not true, and you're going to tell me why it's not true. There are three FDA-approved drugs in three forms. So the one in the upper left, um, Marinol or Dronabinol, has been around for 30 years, was first approved as a treatment for chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting. Um, Sesamet, which was another synthetic cannabinoid, another synthetic cannabinoid compound for the same indication. And Syndros at the bottom is just a liquid version of Dronabinol. And um, the company that makes it brought it to market only about a year and a half ago and was willing to invest the tens of millions of dollars in getting a product approval that I thought was a waste of their money because um, there are already um, plenty of other approaches. And if you poll people going through chemotherapy and you let them choose what they prefer, none of them will choose these expensive pharmaceutical versions of cannabinoids. They'll all prefer what they get from the dispensary or their reliable friend who's been selling them weed for decades. So it's an odd world. Um, but, um, oh, and for those of you who, like I do, have easily reactivated post-traumatic stress disorder from a fateful night in November of 2016, where the colors were red and blue, that's the funniest joke in the whole talk. So. You, you will see that the marijuana uh, legalization across 33 states and now four or five US territories in DC looks not unlike the electoral map. Um, of that evening. Um, uh, and this, again, changes almost monthly. So if you want a, a, a but, but m you know, the majority of US states now have some form or another of legalization, ranging from very restrictive medical use uh, with an endorsement or attestation by a treating physician to essentially um, legalized access for um, what's now called adult use. Recreational use is not the term that, that is um, the term of art. It's now adult use. Um, this is actually the, the exciting news that gives a lie to the previous slide. So this is um, the FDA approval of Epidiolex. Epidiolex is a liquid version of pure CBD that's derived not from hemp but actually from the cannabis plant. And it was approved specifically to treat um, two forms of very devastating childhood epilepsy, uh, Lennox-Gastaut syndrome and Dravet syndrome. Um, and uh, that's now available. You may have seen the, the really uh, compelling and rather heart-wrenching stories of families who, before Epidiolex got legalized, moved to Colorado yeah. to buy Charlotte's Web. Charlotte's Web was the 
the hybrid of cannabis that was high CBD, cannabis that um, was already emerging in sort of the folklore of, of um, uh, the underworld of cannabis as a treatment for these devastating epilepsies. Uh, there's a very nice Vice video if, if you're interested. And so this is, by the way, the U.S. Um, controlled Substances Schedule. As you can see, Schedule 1, high potential for abuse, no accepted medical use, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And that's where cannabis still lives. The FDA placed Epidiolex down at Schedule 5, but unlike any other drug approved by the FDA, where once it comes to market, a physician can use it for an off-label purpose, physicians are not allowed to prescribe Epidiolex for anything but documented Lennox-Gastaut syndrome or Dravet syndrome. So I had a patient come to see me a few weeks ago who uh, is in a, a high-precision field where there's a routine tox screening um, who wishes to have a pure CBD product for insomnia and, and a heart rhythm disturbance that he's convinced CBD helps with, for which there's no evidence, um, and can't get it, right? It would be reasonable for somebody like that to have access to epidiolex, but you can't prescribe it. So, okay, that's sort of the intro. Um, the next part is, is um, some very schematic discussion of cannabis in the brain. <clears throat> and I'll tell you the take-home message before I start. As my friend Mark D'Antonio, who runs our child adolescent inpatient unit uh, at Resnick Hospital, and which he's been doing for more than three decades and probably has taken care of more acutely psychiatrically ill children and adolescents than any other inpatient psychiatrist in North America by virtue of his of his duration in the role, <clears throat> Mark's, Mark's statement, and he's sort of an understated guy, is it would really be better if children and adolescents didn't smoke marijuana. Okay, uncontroversial. <laughs> the, the, the subtext is we know that the brain is you know, continuing to develop and myelinate and prune well into the early to mid-20s. Dr. Lester, who's a child psychiatrist, will correct me if I misspeak, right? And, and to the extent that, that that process is vulnerable potentially to the effects of cannabinoids, it would probably just be better if, if, if people waited until their mid or late 20s. Now, is that a realistic um, uh, public policy? Probably not. Um, so maybe, maybe the second half of that is if kids are going to use, it would be really good if they used in a very moderate uh, and only rare fashion, uh, which is sort of his harm reduction approach. But again, the kids he sees have already crash landed in a hospital for an acute problem. So by definition, those are probably kids who are at high risk for um, persistent or bad new things to happen. Um, and of course, the big thing that everybody's worried about is what role does cannabis have in inducing psychosis? Probably not causing schizophrenia, but in unmasking a risk or vulnerability and maybe hastening its presentation or making its natural history worse than it would have been if cannabis hadn't been in the picture. So the three domains that, that have been of most interest are, are cognitive capacity, thinking, memory, IQ, motivation, you know, drive to do stuff, and the risk for psychosis. And then, as we've come to appreciate, there is a, a physical dependence uh, syndrome. It's not as severe as alcohol or opioid, but it's there, and it's not tr to be trifled with. Um, some of you will recognize this man. The young people in the room may not. <laughs> this is Spicoli. This is Sean Penn's first serious acting role, if you want to call it that. Fast Times at Ridgemont High. So, you know, Spicoli was an amiable surfer dude, sweet guy, 
did a lot of blazing, you know, in the locker room between classes that he didn't go to. And I show the picture partly to get the, the laugh, but also because I think we all know a Spicoli or two, right? Yeah. Where normal adolescent and young adult trajectory really was derailed and probably <clears throat> Spicoli never right, never really got back on track. I mean, he may have not been on, on the path to be a rocket scientist, but um, Spicoli didn't get back on track. So that's not a trivial thing. And you know, in the context of this discussion, it's easy to be flippant about that. But we know that there, there, there are lots of folks where this happens. <clears throat> the science of, of the impact of cannabis on cognition is complicated. There are some nice review articles. I'm not going to be able to do them justice here. Um, we know that acute intoxication with cannabis impairs uh, learning and memory. It's not clear how long that endures if you abstain. There's some suggestion that um, within three, three days of abstinence, you begin to bounce back to a baseline. But not surprisingly, the impact of that impairment likely has something to do with um, what your brain was like before it was exposed, right? So if you have tremendous um, IQ and tremendous resilience and tremendous um, reserve, you're much likely to be impacted than somebody who's sort of less lucky in terms of the biology and environmental opportunities he or she has had. The example I use is Bill Maher, who if you believe his rhetoric, has probably smoked a lot of cannabis in his life and yet seems to be pretty intact in terms of his motivation, his, his um, intelligence. Not everybody likes his politics, but he's, he's a smart, articulate guy who doesn't seem to have taken a big hit to his brain. Although who knows what he would have been like if he had never, never inhaled. Um, so, um, so an uncertain trajectory. The big questions that are not so well answered, um, how much difference the baseline uh, uh, status have in outcome. Um, the role of neuroimaging in neuropsych studies is, is really um, complicated. They don't correlate with each other. We don't know really how much cannabis is too much. That is the basic question of is there a dose response relationship to get toxicity? Unanswered. Um, at what stage of brain development is cannabis most harmful? Relatively unanswered, thus the sort of reasonable but probably impractical statement it would be better not to expose yourself to your 25 or older. Are there differences um, between young men and young women in terms of exposure? And what other genetic variables might be relevant? So, so really many more questions and answers here. Um, it's pretty clear that heavy cannabis use is associated with decreased motivation. There's lots of animal and human data suggests it interrupts reward-based behavior. Um, and again, that can become a self-fulfilling uh, Spicoli prophecy. Um, what about the canvas risk? So, um, you know, what people have studied is, is there a direct relationship cannabis cause psychosis? Is there a relationship where cannabis interacts with genetic variables, et cetera? And I've already said this is not well worked out, um, but certainly of, of significant concern. Um, this is an interesting study. I don't expect you to grok it just with a single look, but the, the, the finding here is that um, patients who have schizophrenia have um, more dense, a higher number of CB1, that's a cannabinoid receptors in the brain. So again, they may be more sensitive to the effects of cannabinoids as a function of whatever the biology of schizophrenia is. Uh, and that may mean that they're more vulnerable to, for example, the potential for cannabis to induce psychotic symptoms. Um, so I think as a take-home statement, while cannabis is neither necessary nor sufficient for developing schizophrenia, the available evidence suggests that cannabis use may initiate the emergence of lasting illness in some persons, and this finding warrants serious consideration. So of course, the common sense counsel that we give patients who've come into the hospital with 
psychosis that appears to have blown up in the context of heavy, heavy cannabis uses, it would really be better if you abstained. And if you can't abstain, it would really be better if you um, used minimally. And again, I, I realize those of you who work with patients may see the, 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 the frailties of that assertion, but I think that is a reasonable stance based on what we know. Um, and it's not quite as simple as cannabis is bad. So there actually are now two trials of specifically cannabidiol. To remind you, cannabidiol is thought to be the non-psychoactive of the big two. Uh, cannabidiol has some uh, anti-inflammatory properties and it may actually have some antipsychotic properties. So I'm sure you've all sat with young people with schizophrenia who say, you know, when I smoke cannabis, I get a kind of anxiety relief or it does something for my sense of well-being that the antipsychotics don't do and that the conventional medications don't do. And I think we were all probably trained to be very skeptical of that statement. Oh, this is just, an, this is just addict talk, right? This is just substance abuse talk. There may be something there. And this is actually one of the first trials to show it. So this is 88 patients in Northern Europe who had an established diagnosis of schizophrenia and were on maintenance antipsychotic medications. And they were then randomized. They stayed on their antipsychotics. They were then randomized either to placebo or 1,000 milligrams a day of cannabidiol. That's a huge dose of cannabidiol. Just, just to, if you were trying to buy that on the open market you know, from hemp-derived CBD that you ordered from Amazon, that would be hundreds and hundreds of dollars a day of cannabidiol. Um, so interestingly, the group that had CBD added to their antipsychotic actually had lower levels of positive psychotic symptoms. Um, that's good, that's an improvement, and were uh, more likely to be related, rated as overall improved, also good, compared to the placebo group. Um, there was also a statistically non-significant trend towards improvement in thinking and memory, cognition and, and overall functioning. There were no differences in side effects between the two groups. So very interesting. Now, I have asked on a number of occasions the schizophrenia experts in our department um, if they, based on this, would endorse a patient in their clinic, if they and their family could afford the hundreds of dollars a day that 1,000 milligrams a day of CBD would cost as an adjunct, and they've said yes. They, would, they think this is compelling enough to try. So I'm sorry to make your lives more complicated, but, um, but this, is, this is the evidence. Now, there was another trial. Sorry, that's just the picture from the evidence. This is the same idea, slightly less, 600 milligrams instead of 1,000 milligrams per day. Um, uh, smaller group of patients. And here, actually, there was no difference between those who got placebo augmentation of their antipsychotic medication and those who got cannabidiol augmentation. But there was no clinical worsening in the CBD group. Um, and again, there were no differences in side effects. So one positive trial saying CBD helps and one um, the trial that did not show a distinction between the two. Please. Would you say that uh, the dosage amount is what? Maybe. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe that's the issue. I mean, it, so your question really opens the Pandora's box of we know almost no nothing about dose-response relationship for either CBD or any of the cannabinoid compounds. And, and that's, you know, when you go into a dispensary and you listen to the very sincere young person mm -hmm with no medical training behind the counter, speaking with, with tremendous self-confidence about how much of this or how much of that will achieve your goal when you identify the symptom you want to help with. It's very compelling, but it's just not scientific. <laughs> this is just another small study, and this was not in patients who had schizophrenia, but rather were in a high-risk group based on family history, genetics, et cetera. 
Um, and it was really looking at the question of what impact might CBD have on regional brain metabolic activity. And interestingly, I'm sure it's obvious to you from the slide, Joe, um, the, the regional brain abnormalities of the high-risk group trended towards normalizing when they're exposed to CBD. So again, just suggesting there may be something actually therapeutic or antipsychotic or anti-inflammatory that's, that's, that's not that's showing harmful. Correct, that, and not showing harm. No harm. Correct. So this is actually um, probably not adequate um, to the task, but this is a meta-analysis of the impact on recreational or adult use cannabis on patients with non-psychotic illnesses, so anxiety disorders, mood disorders, uh, PTSD. Uh, and the take-home is it would appear that cannabinoids um, are associated with worse outcomes. People uh, are more treatment resistant and, and may actually do better in terms of their mood and anxiety disorders if and when they stop cannabis. So, um, you know, the majority of the patients I see don't have psychotic illnesses, but they may well have a mood or anxiety disorder. And, and as a psychiatrist, I feel a certain obligation to be declarative about what the evidence says about cannabis and these. And again, you know, you all take care of patients with depression or anxiety who absolutely insist that cannabis is the only thing that helps. But that's not what the evidence supports. So. Okay, so I'm going to run through this part pretty quickly. Um, this is really um, mostly related to, um, to non-psychiatric applications, um, and particularly to pain and uh, symptom management applications, which I realize is not your chief interest, so I'm going to go fast. Again, just to underscore why it's so hard to study cannabinoids, even though we're talking mostly about THC and CBD today. These are just nine of the more than 100 um, uh, molecules in, in um, whole flower cannabis, and most of them have uns are entirely unstudied. So if you sort of say, so what, boil it down for me, what's the take home from that beautiful um, monograph I showed you uh, at the beginning, the National Academy's monograph, and or other sort of um, large, uh, rigorous meta-analyses. The take home is cannabinoids seem to work for pain, particularly nerve pain, so diabetic neuropathy, HIV neuropathy, chemotherapy neuropathy. And they seem to have some role in treating nausea and vomiting associated with chemotherapy and maybe wasting like people who have a, an illness like HIV, although that's from very early in the epidemic before we had effective anti-HIV treatment. Um, and some people will assert that it can help with sleep, although the data is slim to absent. And some people, our child anxiety clinic is full of parents who want to try, try CBD or, or THC CBD for their kids with ticks and Tourette's, although the evidence is scant. Um, so that's, I mean, if you, you cannot pay attention now for the next five minutes because it really told you everything there is to tell you about evidence for efficacy. This is from the monograph. It sort of says the same thing. Um, and um, I'm going to skip this one. So this is actually just the, the, um, the seizure, uh, the epilepsy trial that got the epidiolex indication that we've already talked about. Um, it's still true that for people who are purchasing cannabinoids not from state-certified legal dispensaries, but rather from either illegal or unlicensed dispensaries or from street dealers, that you really don't know what you're getting. Um, you, don't know, you don't know that the, that the composition of THC and CBD is what they're telling you, and you don't know about the adulterants. This is an entertaining small study that confirms that. The investigators just went and bought 75 products at three different cities, San Francisco, LA, and Seattle. And the accurate, it was accurately labeled in only 17% of the uh, time, with the majority of them over-labeled, meaning there was 10% or less content than claimed. 
and um, about a quarter of them were underlabeled, where you actually were getting more than you paid for. Interestingly, Los Angeles was a city where you tend to get more than what you were paying for, <laughs> reflecting our generous spirit, I guess. Um, but of course, the other important thing here is um, not, these are not testing for um, pesticides, for fun fungus. The new state requirements, again, legal licensed dispensaries are now having to test for pesticides and fungus. And to be honest with you, when I'm thinking about um, cannabinoid use in my patient population, and I think you very appropriately made the distinction between maybe the risk-benefit discussion is different in a 20-year-old teetering on the edge of schizophrenia versus a 60-year-old with metastatic cancer who's not operating heavy equipment and not raising small kids and not you know, trying to develop a professional career, but is at a different stage of life. Um, you know, and, but say you're getting chemotherapy and you're immune compromised, right? And so now you're ingesting fungus and that's probably not a good thing, right? So, so um, in case you want to get lost in the morass that is cannabis regulation in California, there are three state agencies uh, involved, the Bureau of Cannabis Control, the California Department of Public Health, and the California um, Department of Food and Agriculture. And, and um, it's quite challenging. I don't know if you know anyone who's attempted to do legal business in this domain, but it's really, really challenging. Um, this is the checklist of what, what they're now obligated to test for under the new testing criteria that went into effect in January of 18. And this is widely available on the web, but in case I didn't make this offer previously, I would be happy to send you my entire slide set. There's nothing proprietary, so um, um, I don't know what the best way to achieve that is. If there's a single person to whom I could send them and they could be distributed, but or I'm going to show you my email address at the end, so just write to me if you the want. The conference to. organizers will yeah. upload it. So. Perfect. Oh, okay. Yeah. Super. Super. Okay, so this was just about, um, about uh, regulation. Uh, for pain, it, I guess I just want to say it's not clearly worked out what is the mechanism that is the pharmacologic mechanism by which cannabinoids provide pain relief. Uh, it's intuitive to think that it has something to do with CB1 and CB2 receptors, but that does not seem to be the case. And the leading theory now is it has something to do with the impact of cannabinoids on glycine receptors um, in the spinal cord. But, you know, that's not worth particularly anything. So um, just a few snapshots of clinical trials. So one of the first studies done was by a guy named Don Abrams, who's a medical oncologist at UC San Francisco. This is a small study of cannabis. Uh, this is um, um, combusted. So this is smoked cannabis, three times a day cigarettes um, in um, a group of patients with uh, HIV polyneuropathy, which uh, you may know is a very um, unpleasant and difficult to manage uh, neuropathic pain syndrome. Um, this was, as, I, as you can see now, a 12-year-old study. Um, the active group, the group that got um, cannabis rather than cannabis-extracted cigarettes, actually had a 34% decrease in pain. Um, if you are trying to get a new drug approved by the Food and Drug Administration and you demonstrate a 34% decrease in pain ratings, that's a slam dunk approval. So that's a very robust effect. And as you can see, a greater than 30% 30, 30 pain reduction in about half versus 24% of the placebo, again, very robust. That's also a, a level of relief that in behavioral studies of analgesia, patients will say, even if they're not getting a, a, a psychotropic high, patients will say, that's worth taking. I would take that medicine because that, that's the degree of relief that you're providing. So, so that's robust. The big problem with this study is this turned out to be a group of of regular cannabis smokers. And so um, methodologically, one of the criticisms was the folks that had been randomized to placebo probably knew within about 20 seconds of the first 
inhaled that they were on placebo and not active drug because they were experienced users and, um, and many investigators since have made a point of studying non-regular users as a way of avoiding that. Um, this is, um, so this is vaping rather than um, combustible, but same idea, again showing a, a benefit in neuropathic pain, don't want to bore you with the details. Uh, yet another one, this is done by an investigator down at UC um, San Diego um, named, uh, named Mark Wallace, who's an um, anesthesia pain guy who's interested in <coughs> cannabis. Again, don't want to bore you with details. Sativex is something we may see in the United States. So Sativex is a liquid, it's an under the tongue spray. It's a one-to-one um, mixture of THC and CBD. Um, it's actually um, produced from the whole plant, not synthesized. And it's actually already been approved for cancer pain and other kinds of intractable pain in Canada and a bunch of European countries, but not yet in the United States. It's sort of gotten stalled in what they call phase three trials in the United States. Um, and it's possible that we will never see it, but... Um, um, Nabixamols is, is the um, chemical name for Sativex, so it's the same molecule. Going to scoot through this. Um, so just as a quick aside, there are some studies. Um, again, if you think about this idea that CBD or, or whole uh, plant cannabis may be anti-inflammatory, it might make sense that it would be studied in illnesses that are thought to be associated with immune activation or inflammation. So inflammatory bowel disease is one of those. And there are some studies in, um, as you can see, this is in Crohn's disease. There have been some, also some studies in ulcerative colitis, um, uh, both positive and negative results. Um, and I don't, don't know if you, any of you have anybody in your life with inflammatory bowel disease, but I certainly know folks who really feel that cannabis has made a huge difference for them in the management of their, their chronic um, illnesses. Um, okay, so that, that was, again, just a snapshot of efficacy. I want to talk now a little bit about public health and sort of um, impacts on populations. Um, and I think some of this might be surprising and interesting. This is the biggest headline as we struggle with what is routinely referred to as the opioid overdose epidemic. And as we look at the impacts of things like um, electronic prescription monitoring and education of prescribers, uh, and we look at the impact also of cannabis legalization, um, this is a pretty striking finding, and it's now been replicated. And the finding is, this was a study of, um, of autopsy results in states uh, where cannabis had been legalized in one form or another. And the finding was, that's underscored, states with can cannabis laws had almost a 25% lower opioid overdose mortality rate. And that relationship, as you can see, was statistically significant and got stronger the longer the legalization had been in effect compared to states that did not have legalization. And if you look at the impacts of the other things I listed, like electronic um, monitoring and stuff like that, those have impact, but they're single-digit impacts, right? So um, from a public health perspective, if this is a real relationship, this is quite, quite striking and much, of much greater magnitude than the other ones. No one knows what the mechanism of this is. Um, uh, this could be, I mean, these are just hypotheses, this could be um, people who are using opioids for pain added cannabis and um, needed fewer molecules a day, fewer milligrams a day of opioids. That's certainly a reasonable hypothesis. Um, uh, it should be pointed out, and you know, again, I'm sure you hear this, but it, you know, so, so nobody ever died of a cannabis overdose. That's almost certainly correct. Cannabis does not suppress respiratory drive. Cannabis does not kill end organs like alcohol kills livers. Um, 
there may be something fundamentally safer about the molecule. Now we know, of course, that it's not as simple as that, that people will mix their cannabis with alcohol or opioids or other things that in fact can um, be lethal. Um, but it may be that, that some, that maybe that part of what's driving this is it's fundamentally um, less uh, risky molecule to adjust even, to adjust even in, in reckless doses. Um, this has been replicated now, this finding. I'm gonna show you that in a minute. But of course, the other interesting suggestions are there's some evidence that CBD reduces opioid craving. So it could be that people are able to both get pain relief and maybe stave off opioid withdrawal by using cannabis, and that might mean lower risk for, for opioid overdose deaths. Um, but again, right now, this is just a correlation. There is not a, a causal mechanism that has, been, that has been identified. And skepticism is certainly warranted. I was actually very interested to see that um, this group, Powell and colleagues, actually replicated the finding. Um, and again, same, but roughly the same order of magnitude. And interestingly, they, again, I don't want to bore you with the details, but they um, made a slightly more refined observation that not just legalization, but the presence of legal dispensaries seems to be an important element in, in this effect um, happening. So um, the other thing they studied was um, substance abuse treatment admissions. So it's not just opiate overdose deaths that go down, but admission to substance abuse treatment centers seem to go down. And um, opiate prescribing seems to go down after cannabis legalization. And that latter finding actually has been um, substantiated um, uh, if you're just a, a, a budget hawk and you want Medicare to spend as little as possible, particularly on unimportant molecules like psychotropic molecules, which everybody knows nobody really needs. That was me speaking facetiously. Um, <laughs> this is some naturalistic Medicare Part D data. So that's drug, um, drug cost data in states after cannabis legalization. And not just opioids, we'll finish the thought and then I'll, not just opioid prescribing goes down, but benzodiazepine prescribing goes down, or spending goes down, antidepressant spending goes down, and set of hypnotic spending goes down. So again, just these are again public health level observational studies, but this was a study looking at the impact of daily cannabis versus daily tobacco use in a pretty large group of New Zealanders. And the finding was, and this has actually been replicated by um, by actually UCLA pulmonologist, there's a UCLA pulmonologist who's now in his 80s, Don Tashkin, who's probably done the most work on cannabis and the lung of anybody in the world. And his most striking finding was that cannabis, smoking cannabis doesn't seem to increase risk for lung cancer. Um, which is really interesting and counterintuitive, but if you sort of drill down and you look at what are the products of combustion of cannabis compared to the products of combustion of tobacco, in fact, they're very different. Um, and you know, the products of tobacco combustion are known carcinogens, whereas the products of cannabis combustion are not, and maybe that explains it. So the other findings were that regular cannabis smoking was not associated with a bunch of stuff that regular tobacco smoking is, like increased risk for cardiovascular disease. Um, the only area where cannabis sh uh, showed worse was periodontal disease. And again, this is one study. Nobody would say this means that cannabis is good for your health or it's fine, but it's an interesting <laughs> comparison. Um, I'm going to skip drug interactions. The, the traffic fatality issue is a very important one, of course, and the Colorado data, at least, suggests that um, the feared slaughter on the highways associated with cannabis legalization did not, in fact, happen. What happened in Colorado is that the total number of substance-related traffic fatalities went down. 
But among people who died in traffic fatalities that had positive tox screens, greater proportions of them had cannabis in their bloodstream, often associated with other things. So again, nobody's saying driving while buzzed is good. I think what you can say from this data is um, the feared result of legalization that everybody was going to be driving stoned and lots of people were going to die appears not to have happened. Um, the skip synthetic poisoning. Going to skip this. Want to just say a few words about um, the prevalence of cannabis use disorder. So this is adult data, um, uh, looking at about a 10-year period. Sorry, this is a one-year period, 2012 and 13, during a time of greater availability of legal cannabis, um, showing a 12-month prevalence of dis use disorders of about <coughs> about two and a half percent, and a lifetime prevalence of about six. Here's actually what um, I'm I'm most comforted by. So this is about 10 years of data. And this is child adolescent use and abuse disorders of cannabis, showing actually a downward trend. So again, at a time when many people understandably were worried that more permissive societal attitudes about cannabis was going to be associated with an explosion of abuse and dependence disorders in triple adolescence, at least this data suggests that that didn't happen or hasn't happened. So um, what else? Uh, I think I'm, I'm actually pretty close to what I wanted to cover. Um, so I think there's credible evidence that cannabinoids can be helpful in nerve pain and in chemotherapy, nausea and vomiting, and we didn't talk about this, but, but in spasticity associated with multiple sclerosis and in, in uh, wasting associated with HIV. There are now three FDA-approved cannabinoid medicines. Um, we may see nabiximols soon, and I would say you know caution is still very much warranted in terms of uh, cannabinoids and psychiatric illness. Oh, this is just for your entertainment. So I was talking about sausage and public policy, right? So this was the law in, on the books in California between 1996 when we legalized medical marijuana in California and when this became irrelevant because now you can buy for adult use without physician endorsement. So if you had AIDS, anorexia, which just means can't eat, not anorexia nervosa, just anorexia, arthritis, cachexia, mean wasting, uh, cancer of any kind, chronic pain, migraine, persistent muscle spasms, seizures, severe nausea, or any chronic or persistent medical symptom that either A, substantially limits your ability to conduct one or more major life activities as defined in the Americans with Disabilities Act, <sighs> pause, or B, if not alleviated, may cause serious harm to the patient's safety or physical or mental health. In other words, whatever ails you, Right? The California legislature was persuaded that cannabis was good for whatever ails you, and you just needed some doctor who you paid $40 as he sat in the window at the cannabis dispensary to check a box. That's basically how it was. Some of you walked down Venice Beach and saw the doc in the boxes, right? Um, that's, that, was the, that was the level of evidence. So again, very unrigorous, very unscientific, um, but that's how it was. And happily, we're moving on from that. Uh, hope this was of interest and relevant to your work, and thank you for your really great comments and questions. Good luck, everybody. Thank you. Thank you.